Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Uh, Mr. Frost on. 
Mark, are you there? How are you doing? Hi, Rex. Good morning. Good morning. It's so glad to, I'm so glad to have you here, and welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, how how is everything going today? We were talking a little bit before the show, and you told me uh, uh, an, uh, about something on on the air. If you'd like to share that. Oh, I'd, sure. I'd like well, to... uh, you know, I uh, I had mentioned to you how much I'd uh, loved this new documentary that Martin Scorsese had done about George Harrison that just ran on HBO last week. It's a it's a brilliant film and it it's a great illumination of of the guy that we probably knew the least about in, in the group, um and who was the most reticent in terms of staying in the public eye later in his life. But um in nineteen eighty six I was working on on the first movie I did. It was a, a movie with the John Schlesinger directed that I wrote and co produced called um the Believers, and I was on my way to London for the first time to um, to work on the script and and uh, get ready for production. And um, took a flight from Los Angeles to to London, and I sat down in my seat and I looked over to my left and realized that uh, George Harrison was sitting next to me, and uh, proceeded to have the most delightful conversation with maybe the most approachable public figure that I think I've ever met. Um, uh, he was the kind of guy that just was imminently uh, present wherever he was and made you feel um, wonderful being in his presence because he, he he clearly didn't think he was better than anyone else or, or more special. He was very grounded. Um, he was doing a lot of film work at the time, and he knew, he knew John and... Um, it turned out we had a lot to talk about. So um, I was very blessed to have that experience and, and have always treasured that memory. And the um, the documentary just brought that all back to me and, and how much, uh, how big a part he was of that group and how important he was as an individual artist afterwards. Wow. I mean, what an incredible experience. Yeah, it was and, the first time I'd ever gone to London, you know, and I sit down and I'm next to a Beatle. It was, I felt like I'd won the lottery. And and then and then something else happened on that same trip. You well, mentioned. as it turned out, Schlesinger was a neighbor uh, of uh, of another Beatle, but he he didn't tell me this. He just said one day, "We're going to go over and have tea at the neighbor's house." And so, <laughs> I, I walked along and and we walk in and I realize I'm in Paul McCartney's kitchen, and wow. got got to meet him <laughs> on the same trip. I mean, these kind of things are you know, as a kid, you. I worshipped the Beatles, and to meet two of them on the same trip was uh, almost beyond belief. Wow! Wow! Well, that is that is that is awesome. But I got to say something though, Mark, and that is that so many people and people in the chat room feel the same way about you. You know, having collaborated with David Lynch and and creating, you know, the TV show Twin Peaks, uh, which I have always maintained was what made television grow up, even though it wasn't received by the network, you know, or whatever happened with it. I mean, I, I have always said it was my favorite show. And, uh, you know, television kind of came of age with Twin Peaks. And, and now I, I think you could see so much of the influence that existed uh, from back then uh, in our everyday TV shows that we – I mean, when you did the show, let me ask, let me preface it this way. You can tell me I'm all wet or or, or whatever. But at the time that, that Twin Peaks was going on, it was kind of like this nighttime soap opera, which really we weren't used to. There was, you know, Murder She Wrote and Barnaby Jones, and everything was wrapped up neatly in an hour. Nowadays, storylines can go on for, you know, I mean, if you look at the Mentalist, I think he's been pursuing Red John for three seasons now or more. You know, right. and you know, which was, was something that you know you guys had done with Laura Palmer and keeping her, you know, her murder hidden and things like that. So there, but anyway, the point being, a lot of people in the chat room, a lot of people anxious to uh, to hear from you. So I'm going to shut up. Oh, well, thank you very much for that, Rex. We you know, it's funny. We um we were approached by the network. Um they knew we were working together on a couple of uh, screenplays and um wondered if we might want to do a pilot and um at the time, I mean, this was late 80s, so uh, television was dominated by a, a lot of the Aaron Spelling shows, you know, Dynasty and Dallas right. had obviously been on for a long time. And the nighttime soap was sort of a staple. And um, they, I think that's sort of what they had in mind when they spoke to us. Um, they even referenced Peyton Place to us, um, uh-huh. uh, which in, in part led to our idea of doing something about a small town. 
Um, Peyton Place, obviously, in New England, and a, very much a, a story set in and about the repression of the 1950s. But um, we uh, decidedly set out to do something quite different. And uh, because there was so, we had so little expectation that that dealing with a major network would would lead to anything that we felt very free to do whatever we wanted to do. And we made that a condition going in that, look, we'll do this, but you, you have to leave us alone because we're going to come up with something that you're not going to be able to really shape or understand or probably even appreciate. Um, and in fact, when they saw the pilot, they said, you're right. We have no idea what this is. Um, but w- people seem to love it, and it, it was, you know, they go through this this grisly testing uh, process where it's not, you know, anything short of hooking people up to electrodes and um, making them jump like a frog on a hot plate uh, in response to what they're seeing in the moment. Um, and for some reason, people were jumping like those frogs uh, when they watched this thing. So um, they went along with it, and. Um, our feeling was we're going to do this as if there aren't any rules we're just going to we're going to kick in the door and do whatever we feel like doing and you know that's what led to twin peaks wow wow well i have a couple of questions from the chat room one one actually is a comment from a a a, a good friend of mine jo- joe wilson uh, who's got a web series called vampire mob which is a a, a wonderful web series on the internet and uh, chris mulkey is is in the show as as and you know Chris from Twin Peaks, obviously. And, of course, yeah. Chris has, has been, uh, uh, we've been trying to have Chris on this show as well, so uh, but there's some, some crossover. But somebody, um, uh, I, let me see, I want to just, um, Dean asks, he says, uh, well, one, it's an honor to meet you this way, and he, went, and he wondered if you watched the tribute to the Twin Peaks uh, TV show that Psych did last year called No, Double you know, I've, I've heard about it. I um, I didn't see it, but uh, I know they cast uh more than a few folks. I think Ray Wise and, and Cheryl Lee were in it, and um, uh, I I got really good feedback from people about it that they felt it was a nice way to remember and honor the show. So that was kind of cool. It, 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 it was fun. It, it, it was very fun. I, I might even have it on disc, and if I do, I'll send it to you. But um, uh, from from Germany, Twin Peaks uh, Movie Angel says Twin Peaks was so popular in Germany, everyone talked about it, and definitely it was one of my all-time favorites. So, I mean, you've got, you know, you, you do, you have a lot of fans here today. And, um, and you know, you have done so many different things. And I, I would like to uh, talk more about Twin Peaks. I, I, I mentioned this to you before. If we could do that maybe in another show at another time, kind of focus on Twin Peaks. But um, you have done so much. You've you've written novels and, uh, you know, you're nonfiction and fiction and uh, directed and produced and, and you write for television and for film that I'd like to uh, ask you about, you know, the differences in the disciplines that you've worked in um, and how each is for you know for you and how you, and, and wearing different hats, what that's like. Well, it's interesting because I I realized this was something that that um, David and I had in common shortly after we met, and it was something that I he kind of inspired me to embrace, which is that if you've got a creative impulse in you, um, it it almost doesn't matter how you express it. I mean, you need to find a medium for it, you need to find a means of expression, but if if you are by your very nature a creative person and you want to express yourself then my what i've learned to do was let the idea dictate the means of expression um I, i've always embraced a whole um really the whole field of storytelling and I've, I've done most of them uh if not all i think i haven't written a broadway musical but just about everything else um that you know let the let the story, let the idea, let the feeling that the piece that's coming up in you gives you um, direct you toward the the way you want to express it. So um, television, film, fiction, nonfiction, prose, uh, screenplay, uh, stage play, whatever it might be, um, I've, I've, I'm very lucky in that I've had the chance to, to work in all those mediums. And uh, when something comes up and I feel... Um, you know, that sense of incipient inspiration, um, I listen to it and I try to discern where is it taking me. Um, 
is it taking me to a book, a movie, a, a, a television show, etc.? And then you just get on that pony and ride it as as long and as as far as you need to go. Um, the the first novel I wrote, which was 1992-93, um, came out of something that happened to me when I was playing Scrabble, believe it or not. Um, and I knew the moment that I cooked it up. I It, it was a book called The List of Seven, uh, and it's about Arthur Conan Doyle, um, who meets in this fictional world, uh, um, as a young man, the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. And it came about simply because I was creating an anagram out of the name Sherlock Holmes with the tiles from a Scrabble game. And, you know, 18 months later, I had a finished novel in my hand. Um, uh, seven years later, I decided that there was a story about a young, unknown golfer, real story, true story, about a uh, the first amateur to ever win the U.S. Open in 1913. And, you know, 18 months later, I'd published my first nonfiction book, a book called The Greatest Game Ever Played, which we later made a movie of. So um, it, it's about going down that river and figuring out which inlets you want to explore and, and trusting yourself and committing yourself to whatever path you take. Um, I think that's the, the way to, to really learn about your own creativity. Well, that's fascinating. Is there is there ever the danger, though, of, of being too spread out? Uh, of having too many irons in the fire. I mean, how do you how do you manage to stay focused? Do you do you? I mean, are you doing things simultaneously, or are you doing them kind of consecutively? I'm, uh, I'm generally how, working on uh, in one stage or another uh, of I'd say an average of three things at, at a time. Um, wow. Something might be in its very earliest incubation stage. Something might be. Uh, a piece that you're just finishing, and something might be that you're prepping to do. But when I'm when I'm in the the heart of it, I'm just doing that one thing primarily, um, and the other things are at different stages of either preparation or completion. So it's um, it's a very intuitive, instinctive process for me. I, I don't. Uh, it's not something that I've I've ever tried to write down or keep the rules. But it's it's like you have an internal thermostat that that regulates what you can handle and what you can't. And um, that sort of directs where I go with things. Do you have um, any any practice that you do or, I mean, or maybe it's maybe it just completely is, you know, intuitive or unconscious, you know, when you mentioned thermostat, that, that it's, it's part of your nature. But um, do you have any suggestions for those of us who might have many different things in various stages of, of uh, non-completion that just seem to never get finished and and how to actually make sure that something gets done. Well, I mean, I think that the working definition of of being a writer, a writer is somebody who has to write, uh, not somebody who wants to write. I mean, uh-huh. um, you have to do it every single day. I started writing when I was nine, and I was writing novels by the time I was 11. So, I mean, that that's peculiar, you know. I mean, that's that's a an outlier in the in the the um, the tables of uh, of what's normal for that range. I'd written three novels by the time I was 15. So, I I realized that I had this kind of genetic predisposition for for narrative. That that I mean, everybody's living the narrative of their own life. Um, some people have a compulsion to make up lives and worlds other than their own. And I, I clearly had that impulse from a very early age. Um, I was fortunately able to parlay it into, you know, a living and a career. Um, but it was, it was only because I was single-mindedly dedicated to it. And to really live a, a writer's life is, is a very full and hard commitment to make because there's no guarantee of success. Um, it's a very lonely profession, and um, it's a very trying one. Um, there is nobody holding a gun to your head when you wake up in the morning and saying, you have to write now. Um, so, in essence, you have to hold the gun yourself. And, uh, you know, you either have that impulse and you have that work ethic in you, or you're going to have a very hard time of it. That's um, that's always been my advice to writers. If you If you have to write... 
And, and it's really true for any of the artistic professions, particularly for actors. If you have to act and you can't do anything else, if you literally, if the imperatives inside you are, are demanding that you do this for a living, because it's, it's a, uh, an awesomely difficult way to, to make a living. And I grew up in the household of an actor. My father was, is an actor, was an actor. Um, then you just have to do it, and you have to kind of make all these incredible sacrifices to follow it. If you don't, then you might be better off finding another line of work. It's, um, it, it's a question you have to sit and ask yourself um, very early on. Do I have what it takes to go the distance here? And if you do, great, you know. And then you've got to you've got to do everything you can and put every resource you can into that effort. Um, it's not an easy road, um, but you know you have one life to live, and I believe you should live it in a fully committed way, no matter what you're doing. So listen to that voice, figure it out, and then and then follow the path that seems to open to you. That that is very sound, very excellent. Uh, advice. I, I mean, uh, what, what uh, springs into my head while while you're speaking is that, you know, if we're if some of, some of us may want to wear many hats because, you know, we're dabblers at heart. You know, we we think, well, this is the way to to success, or that's the way to success, and we're not. It's not because we actually have to uh, write or we have to act. But but if we are dabblers, there may be something that we that is imperative for us to do, and so. What you just said about finding that, you know, you know, that kind of self-exploration. Maybe you're not set out to be a writer. Maybe you should be an actor. Maybe you're not supposed to be an actor. You should be a, a producer or a director, or, or maybe, you know, you, you you'd make the world's best makeup artist. What, but whatever it is you have to do, uh, you know, find that passion. Let that passion motivate you and move you, and 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 follow. I guess I, I would say follow your bliss at that point. Yeah, and I'm also I'm a big believer in when you're starting out, you should do any and every job you can get in and around what it is you want to do. I mean, I worked um, as a stagehand starting at the at the Guthrie Theater when I was 15. I was backstage. I lived my, my whole um, high school life, really, watching professional actors in a professional theater company mount these big productions. I was in some of them. I, I wrote plays while I was there. So I was around it. It was the water that I was swimming in. But if um, if you've got a, a way to pursue anything to do with whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's being a PA on a set, whether it's going for coffee, whether it's uh, uh, being on the on a, uh, a a set crew, what, whatever whatever foot you can get in the door, then do as many of the jobs around it as you possibly can because it. It can only help you in understanding what the profession is about and a w about what the creative process is. A, a film set, for instance, is an enormously complex and, and in some ways, very subtle workplace. Uh, in others, it's, it's a mobile factory floor that is either on a set or it's traveling. And you, it, it's a culture in and of, uh, of itself, and you have to spend time in that culture in order to understand it. So... If you if film is what you want to do, find a way to get a job on any film set, whether it's a music video, a student film, or Jim Cameron's next movie. You know, just get in the get in there and watch it and absorb it, and then listen to yourself and see what it is that you're most attracted to. Um, for me, writing was my way in, and and every all doors and paths kind of led back to that, but it was. Becoming a writer also led me to these other paths, um, and I became a producer largely as a, uh, a kind of self-protective reflex. Um, so it's a way to to help prever uh, preserve and and make sure that your work is being done the way that you see fit. Um, so I didn't set out to be a producer, but you be you become one along the way. Um, Again, I was lucky in that I knew pretty early on that writing was going to be it for me. But you know, everybody's path is different, and you've got to find out find out for yourself what it is. So, and the only way you can really identify it is when you're in the environment, when you're, as you said, in the trenches, and they're you know they're firing real bullets. 
Oh, that is amazing. That that is absolutely, again, very very you know sound for all of us. I, I'm gonna come back. I, I, we're almost at the point where we need to take a break, and so what I want to do is I want to take the break early, Mark, and then and then come back and and uh, and ask you a follow up question to to that. And uh, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to to uh, break right now and say that you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is rexsikes.com. Today's guest is Mr. Mark Frost. We'll be back with him in just a moment. If you're listening live or archived, please go ahead and share this with others right now while you're listening. Uh, invite others to to, to to join us, leave comments, uh, live tweet. Uh, it's a great way to spread the word. My upcoming guest will be uh, Director Peter Marshall on tomorrow's show. Uh, we're in the director's series with him, so please join us. Uh, we're, we're talking about script breakdown and analysis for the director in terms of translating the script to the vision on the screen. Rick Vacious will be joining us on Friday's show. He is the executive director and founder of the Pepin Film Festival. I'm going to attend the Pepin Film Festival with uh, uh, some other uh, filmmakers uh, coming up and the 21st through 23rd of October in Pepin, Wisconsin. Kristen Shaw is an acting coach and actress. She'll be joining us to talk more about uh, how an actor prepares. Christopher Hadley is a stuntman and stunt coordinator. We're going to talk to him about stunts. Jane Espenson is going to be joining us again uh, on the 26th uh, and to talk more about uh, writing as well. And Andrea Schreeman and Gregor Collins will be joining us to talk about a movie that they're producing and wrote together. And that's uh, enough about my guests for now, and we're back with Mr. Mark Frost. Um, wow! So <laughs> I'm really enjoying this, Mark. The um, how do you how do you sustain? I mean, in other words, once 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 you get into this creative process, how do you sustain it? What do you do to nourish the the process? What happens if no one's holding a gun to your head? How do you how do you stay motivated? How do you live that creative life? And 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 is living a creative life just necessarily you know, being wedded to the to the page, or is it what you do all the time? Well, I think it, I, I approach it as a philosophical way of living. That you're, you know, you're you're born into this life. You're in this body. You're on a planet. You're with other people, and uh, you're trying to make the uh, the most sense of, out of it that you possibly can as you as you grow older and you you kind of gain control of your vehicle and your faculties and you, you you figure out where you are i think it takes a while to do that that you know that's why ed we need education we need grounding we need um we need social training we need i mean i know you're a parent and uh you see it once you're a parent is it uh, that kids come into the world without really knowing any of these things we're blank you know we're tabula, tabula rasas we we need imprinting we need to figure out who we are and then Again, my own experience was once I'd sort of gotten my feet under me as a human being, I wanted to know more about what it was like to be human. You know, what what are we here for? What what is it? Um, what's available to us? And uh, it's a pretty amazing world, and it's you're pretty lucky if you're born an American, given the way the world works out. So um, let's explore it and. Creativity appeared to me to be the most interesting way to live, to to live uh, in a a sense of of questioning, of exploring, of reaching for understanding, and in trying to tell stories that helped make sense of this uh, experience we're all going through for other people. Um, so that's where the um, the belief in the narrative approach to life uh, kind of married uh, what I did for a living. And uh, on your best days, you, you feel like you're in the flow of your own story and you're trying to uh, live up to your sense of yourself in those moments. Um, and that's similar to what you're trying to do when you're telling a story. Um, I guess that's the way in which the the quotidian or the everyday for me um, is wedded to what I do in my professional life. Um, and that becomes not just then a, a way to make a living, but it becomes a way to make a life. Um, and as you meet colleagues and people who are like-minded, um, it becomes a little easier to build a life around that pursuit 
because it's one you can share with with your friends and and uh, compatriots. And if you're lucky, um, the end product of what you do can then be a way that you connect to other people. Uh, and we're we're really lucky to be living in this this incredible information age where you can create something and and deliver it to people um, in ways that were never uh, remotely possible before the last 30, 40 years. So um, if you do have that creative impulse in you, I, I think this is a very good time to be alive. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to take advantage of that. The, the distribution systems that exist now um, for creative people, particularly when they're starting out, uh, have never been there before. The the ability to say get a group of friends together and and get a digital camera and and go make a short film are really in the last fifteen twenty years they've reached heights that they've never uh, that have never been there before. So I think it's a great time to be creative and it's a great time to explore that in yourself if that's the kind of governing principle in your life. Again, uh, excellent. I, I have uh, some questions that I want to ask, but I do have a number of questions from the chat room. I hope we, uh, we could take a couple of those, and uh, and they will uh, be random, I guess, in nature is, is what I'm going to sure. say. Um, the first question comes from Kelly, if I can scroll back to it. It's scrolling past pretty quick. And uh, sh- Kelly asks, um, I know that first – Oops, this is not the question that I was going to ask first. I am. Um, let me get back to Kelly. Wow, wow, <laughs> they have really scrolled by. Um, uh, they pretty much said. I, I believe it was by Kelly. It said uh, actually. I'm just going to ask what I remember because I can't quite get back there. Okay. Um, the question had to do with uh, your influences. You said that uh, uh, much of your work appears like with Twin Peaks or something have a dark side or dark element to it, but also a humorous side to it. And wondered what uh, – oh, yeah, here it is. Uh, it says, Mr. Frost's scripts always seem to have a dark element even in the humor. What are films that inspired his story uh, or – yeah, I guess that's the question. As a, as, a young, as a young person, what films inspired me? Um, well, it's funny because I, I, I kind of, I grew up in the, in the generation as you did, Rex, that, that started to discover the golden age of movie making. Um, uh-huh. That it, it wasn't just movies; there was great art going on there. So, as a young kid, I remember being mesmerized when they started to show uh, Hitchcock's movies on television: uh-huh. Vertigo, Rear Window. Uh, the Birds, Marnie, Psycho. I mean, th- those really gripped me. And he obviously had a great marriage of the dark and the funny. Um, but I, but for me, it was a really broad. Uh, it was a banquet, you know. It was it was everything from Jean Renoir to, to Buster Keaton to Jerry Lewis to um, uh, David Lean. I mean, uh, uh, the, I mean, the list could go on and on. I, I sat down with David Thompson, the great film critic, once. Uh, I was on a book panel with him and and uh realized that i I like almost every major filmmaker for for some reason or another, whether it's Orson Welles or Robert Brisson or um, you know go go down the list it, it's hard for me to find a great film that I didn't like uh, I, I almost liked them so much that I didn't know I was kind of paralyzed by the choices that were available. And then you have to kind of find your own voice as you start to work and realize which way you're headed. So um, uh, Twin Peaks, in a way, felt like the first time, and, and working with David, with whom I shared a, a really close kind of um, feeling about the world and an, an ethos about how things worked, where, we'd, where we had found a means of expression for what we were truly feeling. Um, but... Uh, that's that's gone on and, and expanded as I've as I've grown older, and I, I think I'm open to any kind of story now. Oh, very good, very good. I have another question from Peter Dom, who says, 20 years after the show aired, Twin Peaks is still, and I believe more than ever, inspiring artists, writers, musicians. Oh, now it's scrolled again. Um, and I believe more than ever in, uh, inspiring artists, and, and I try and document all of that on my Welcome to Twin Peaks blog. 
and it keeps me quite busy. Um, but the question is, is why is Twin Peaks still so relevant in 2011? By the way, he does a great job with that blog too. It's it's a really good resource if you appreciate the show. Um, you know, it's yeah. it's it's hard to say um, exactly why it's still relevant. I think uh, I like to think it's because it was um, we were onto something, um, and and we did it in a way that was well crafted. So it was built to last. It wasn't. We weren't building. Um, you know, we weren't building cars that were going to fall apart after three years. There was no planned obsolescence. Uh, we were trying to build solid, uh, state-of-the-art pieces of work that were going to hold up. Um, and we worked damn hard at it. Uh, and I, I think that's why they've stood the test of time, that they weren't necessarily wedded to the immediate zeitgeist of the moment. Um, that That... I've always felt too that because the show felt a little bit unstuck in time, um, it, it it didn't get hooked into a particular period. I mean, you don't look at the show and say, ah, early '90s. Um, it could be the '50s. It could be the. It could be now. It could be anywhere. Or, um, and I think those are. I mean, it's it's a little bit hard when you when you did the work to analyze it. Um, but I think it, the reason it's lasted has something to do with that. Well, I personally felt an incredible void when the show was off the air, and I was one of the one of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who perused Usenet groups at those times. And uh, I mean, it was such an amazing phenomenon, and everybody trying to to pick out the different story elements and the different secrets and the and the different meanings and and whether you know the floor being painted in one particular way had some. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, it, it, it sure. fostered so much intrigue over. Or are there hidden gems? Are, are the creators, you know, teasing us and taunting us? Are they? I mean, I just, I don't, I can't think of any time where I've seen another. I, I want to say product, but I mean another, another show, another, another series that had that much. Question. I mean, certainly there are fan groups about everything, but Twin Peaks was really, I mean, people were really trying to figure this thing out. And, and well, yeah, and, you know, it, it also, it came along just at the advent, uh, the internet was just kind of kicking in, and um, the, the whole idea of the, the forum and the internet group was brand new, and I, I remember somebody coming in one day and, and dumping this stack of, I guess, about 500 pages of internet chat that somebody had downloaded and printed. And we were just amazed that um, it was engendering this much um, kind of scrutiny and devotion. Um, but it, that's, that's the way the show was designed. I mean, David and I did share and, and do share this love of old films and old Hollywood. And I also had this ambition of trying to film a novel, um, which is what, in essence, the the story was turning out to be. Um, you know, a kind of big, uh, broad, Balzacian um, look at a at a culture and a town, and a and a set of people, um, and to to do it in a in a really detailed way. Um, we also, and I guess I particularly took a lot of pleasure in. Uh, we call them Easter eggs now that you know we didn't have a name for it back then, but of of hiding these little uh, references and and secrets and things that w that would reward people who wanted to pay attention. I mean, I mentioned Vertigo a few minutes ago, and, uh -huh. and my love of uh, of that kind of late period in Hitchcock's work. And you know, there's about six different tributes to to Vertigo in the show, um, down to you know the character of Maddie Ferguson, the the cousin that Cheryl Lee plays, who's the, the Laura Palmer lookalike, is the name of the Kim Novak character in Vertigo. Um, and when people started to to hit on things like that, uh, they realized, oh, there's something going on below the surface here. And I think that's um, it was really gratifying to see people kind of hook in and recognize what we were doing. Uh, yeah, it was, in my opinion, absolutely fascinating, and and also I I would venture to say that the characters were so 
lovably quirky and and real and surreal. And I mean, I remember when I first saw Cooper sit up from bed with his hair plastered up, you know, and 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 looking at him and going, you know, that could be so true to life, you know, to have this kind of bedhead. And you know, I mean, there were just so many little quirky things about it. I, I truly did. I missed the characters immensely when the show was off the air. And, and I have all the box sets and routinely have Twin Peaks, you know, uh, festivals with my friends. But um, I want to ask another question, and that is that uh, Anthony Hobbs um, says, in writing, uh, style seems to depend on genre, script, Writing is different from books, news articles, and different from columns. In this new age, do you think writing for the web series is different for t- TV or film? Uh, yeah, I think web series are slightly different from a, a television show. I mean, there there haven't been a lot of hugely successful ones yet, but the ones that have worked seem to have this kind of uh, very intimate and immediate sense of uh, social connection uh, they're, they're usually focused on a, a small group of people, uh, I, I guess probably because of budget constraints. But um, there's an almost cinema verite quality to the ones that, that I've seen that, that are working. And they, they turn on your ability to create um, observed truths out of uh, watching human behavior. And that, in one way, is the, is the secret to all good writing. But um particularly in that in, in that kind of format where your your canvas is slightly smaller uh and you have to depend on your ability to to capture and create moments between people um to to grab a viewer's interest um you don't have the kind of budgets you're going to have for network or cable shows so you'd better be able to focus in and 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 create and capture some kind of truth about what's going on between the people you're focusing on. Excellent, excellent. Um, Dean uh, Laffey says, I know firsthand that being a writer is a solitary endeavor, but I imagine that working in Hollywood in the Hollywood industry requires one to be extremely outgoing. How do you successfully balance these different roles? Well, it's, it's more about um, I, I do it by doing different projects. I mean, I'll, I've written... I'm just finishing my ninth book. So, you know, when you write a book, you're you're going off to climb a mountain kind of by yourself. Um, and it's a great relief then to come back and do a project that has a social aspect to it. And, and any movie that you're working on, particularly a studio movie, um, is intensely social and collaborative. So um, there's a little bit of a balancing act there. But the the... The truth about writing, unless you're writing as a team or with a partner or in, or in a in a collaborative setting like a like a sitcom room, um, you're sitting by yourself and facing a, a blank screen, and you know you would you'd better be comfortable with that arrangement because that's how you're going to spend most of your time. Um, it's it's important, I think, for writers to not get too solitary. Um, you know, you could turn into J.D. Salinger if you're not careful. But um, again, it's a life is a balancing act, and and writing in that way, the balance between solitude and and privacy and social and public is is an important balance to keep. Excellent. Um, how has the the business changed over the course of your career? I mean, I, I now know that that there are things that are more accessible than than when you were starting out, but but in that question also how how did you begin you know you mentioned that you were writing novels and then you know ultimately got to write a screenplay how did you how did you break in at that point too how did you get started and how has it changed in in the t- the course of your your career life i went to um carnegie mellon university in the theater conservatory program as a acting and directing and playwriting student um so and carnegie had and still does have a a, a long um, and pretty storied tradition of of training professional people in the arts. Um, so I was able, I was lucky enough to meet a couple of people while I was there um, who were alumni um, who helped get me started. It, it turned out that um, uh, a couple of them came back to direct plays while I was there. One of them was a, a guy named Charlie Hayde, who later became Charlie a regular. Hayde. Yeah, became a regular yeah. on Hill Street played Renko on Hill Street and uh-huh. became a good friend and 
Charlie had gone to school with um, Stephen Botchko. Um, uh-huh. And when I came out to California the summer after my junior year, um, Charlie introduced me to Stephen, who was then working at Universal. I think he was working on Macmillan and Wife. And Stephen kind of took me under his wing and, and um, helped get me started and um, introduced me to a lot of guys at the Universal lot. And at that time, Universal was producing, I think, something like 33 hours of primetime TV. Um, and there were only about 60 a week. So it was a, a huge factory, and there was tons going on. And it really felt like, uh, in a, at least on a television way, like the old studio system. Um, it was a... a, a an inferno of work that was going on. So Stephen got me going, and I worked on The Six Million Dollar Man that year and a couple of other small series that were that didn't hang around, but um, that that got me going. And then I, I, I left L.A. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that for a living just yet. I had this dream of writing plays, and I came back and worked in the Midwest as a playwright and did plays at the Guthrie and around Minneapolis and Chicago, things like that, and finally realized I'd wasn't fully prepared to take a vow of poverty for my entire life. So um, I came back to Los Angeles in 81, and Stephen, by that point, had created uh, Hill Street Blues, and he put me to work starting in the third season, and I, I, I was there for three years. So that's what got me going. Oh, wow, wow. Um, and then how has it changed? I mean, much is different from from from. The- those times in the 70s and 80s to today. Yeah, it it it's uh, completely different really. I mean, there was a hegemony of uh, over the uh the kind of work that was being done. It, there were only three networks. It was a, a a much smaller number of people um working on a weekly basis in television. You really had to get your foot in the door and uh you had to be in the club to to get a job. Um, and you were lucky to have one. It, you, you felt intensely lucky to be working at that time because you knew so many people wanted those jobs. Um, film felt like a little bit more of a freewheeling, more artistic kind of world at that time. I mean, this was the the early 70s into the late 70s is one of my favorite periods of American filmmaking. I think many of our greatest movies came out of that time, and um, it wasn't really until Jaws and Star Wars and and then Raiders kind of made making big B movies, um, the A movies that Hollywood produced, um, that that really changed the landscape and the feel um, and the direction of, of filmmaking, American filmmaking. And now it's largely you know driven by marketing and and uh, large uh, high risk, high reward kind of tentpole filmmaking. Um, whereas television has, you know, expanded tremendously. I mean, there's there's dozens of outlets now for storytelling and creativity, whereas before there were only three. So um, those are the two biggest changes. I think television's become much more um, a much more fertile ground for for creativity, and movie making kind of ironically has become much more of the way television was 30 years ago. So. They've a little bit reversed roles, um, and uh, you know we'll see what happens. There, there's always fluidity. There's always change going on, um, but that's that's where we're stuck right now. Yeah, I I, I concur. I, I think that television has kind of found its own, and there's such uh, good television today in 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 ways that there wasn't at one time. I mean, not that there weren't great shows, but but I think television has kind of found its own, and film seems to have gone the way away. You know, I mean, we have yeah. we started to find good movies, and 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 not all the remakes and all the remakes of the TV shows. The other thing that I find just absolutely amazing is that I used to pride myself on knowing, you know, the set dressers of of you know, and and the the crew people, you know, the credits of, of like the 30s and 40s and 50s movies and the 70s movies, and I would sit and watch credits, and I would know who I knew and who I didn't know, and, you know, I could remember all these names, and actors, you know, and, and today, and of course we had three networks, and as you mentioned, and now today there's 
so many channels. There's so many actors, and there's so many people doing things. And even though <coughs> they still say, well, less than two percent of the Screen Actors Guild makes a living at it, there's so many shows that I don't even. I can't. I can't. I, I, I'm constantly going. I don't know who these people are. I don't know who these actors are. There doesn't seem to be as big of a celebrity for as many people today as there was, say, in the in the 70s or 80s when you had. You know, all your stars on, on, on network television now going on Leno or, or it wasn't Leno, but Johnny Carson or Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas in those days. You know what I mean? It, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, so, um, the, the too many to keep track of. It's, it is too many to keep track of. There, and, a, and in a way, it's, um, it's spread out and, and diffused the talent a little bit. Um, although a lot of the shows that you see now are, are excellent. There's also a lot of uh, dross out there. I mean, you know, reality right. uh, television, obviously. Right, right. I mean, it may it may be a, a passing thing, but it. Uh, <laughs> oh. uh, we'll see. I mean, I you know, if if a visitor from outer space were to drop in and turn on network television, they'd I think they'd be kind of bemused by this feeling that American life had turned into one big talent show. <laughs> and that everybody was just uh, waiting to be discovered. That they're just sitting, you know, by their in their house waiting for the phone to ring or in line for an audition, um, as opposed to like going out and learning a craft and um, you know working your way into a profession. It's it's become quite bizarre. You know, I, I, I would say this too, and I I so heartily agree that the amount of people it has displaced in terms of, of being able to find jobs because of reality shows, uh, the number of crew positions that are gone in, in shows like that, that, you know, that used to be, you know, on network television is, is amazing. So, and you mentioned the, the idea of instant fame, either through reality TV or through the, through the, you know, the contests and the, and the talent shows. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a very different, very different, and the money has been taken out of so much of this. Like, you know, some people make lots and lots of money, and then everybody else doesn't make very much money. And and indie filmmakers are having much more tough time, you know, um, reaping the rewards. Uh, I used to think it was very lucrative in the '70s as an actor, even if you didn't act that much. When you did act, you were well paid. Yeah. Uh, now, now that's not so true. Listen, well, Mark, we've got. Go ahead. No, 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 go, no ahead. go ahead, Rex. I was just going to say we got about. Uh, 10 15 minutes at the outside cuz I know you have an appointment you got to get to and I, I didn't want to I didn't want to um you know to run late with you today. Um I wanted to mention your your website which is bymarkfrost.com, correct? Right, bymarkfrost.com and you can you can also uh follow me on Twitter at, at mfrost11. Um uh it it covers most of what I've done the, the website covers what I've done in my career and um and what I'm doing now, um, I'm just finishing the first of a trilogy of, of YA novels for Random House, which will be out, um, I guess, about a year from now. Um, and very excited about that series. So cool. that's co- that's covered. And what in are they? Um, it's a it's a, a trilogy of novels for the young adult market that um, okay. we're also going to, I hope, make a movie of. So. Um, uh, it's a project I've been working on for a couple of years, and it's something I'm really excited about. Um, it's from Random House. The first book is called The Paladin Prophecy, and it'll be out next September, I think. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah, no, I, that's what I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to find out what you were up to and also make sure that they uh, got your website. And it's B-Y Mark Frost, M-A-R-K-F-R-O-S-D. And in the chat room, we can, we can put it up and <laughs> just know there's no ambiguity in, in the word by. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, by, as in as written by. Yeah, right. Very cool. And um, and and uh, um, in the last few minutes, I mean, did, I didn't want to cut you off from any anything that you were saying. You you how now again? You're writing novels. You said you were you had three coming out. Well, it's this is the first of three. Yeah, it's a trilogy. Uh-huh. Um, so book one will be out in the fall, uh, about a year from now. Um, I'm also writing at the moment. I'm writing a movie um, for Disney uh, based on Agatha Christie's Miss Marple character, um, which we're, we got sure. permission from the Christie estate to to kind of um, give Miss Marple a, a, a different sort of look and feel. Um, 
not dissimilar to what they've done with this brilliant new adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that the BBC has been doing the last couple of years. Um, and if you haven't caught that, I, it, uh, it's well worth seeing. I think their second season is, is coming out now. Um, so we've, we've got permission to, to make Miss Marple American and younger and do a kind of origin story about how she became who she um, was known as in the, in the novels that she wrote. Um, so that's a lot of fun, and we, we hope that will go into production sometime next year. Um, I had somebody just now say, hey, hey, we haven't heard about Fantastic Four yet. And, and Mark, since we are getting uh, close to that point where we're going to have to say so long, um, I did mention that I'd love to have you come back at another time. Sure. We and would absolutely we'll let, do that, yeah. And we'll let the listeners know when that's going to occur. And we can spend a whole lot more time talking about you know Twin Peaks and Fantastic Four and and uh, and anything and everything that you and or listeners you know might want to talk about. But if you've got a couple minutes to mention um, Fantastic Four and how that may, maybe came about, and um... yeah, the um, I was a a collector of Marvel comics as a kid, and um, I think my favorite. I mean, everybody loved Spider Man back in that period, but I had a real fondness for the Fantastic Four. Um, and they'd been trying to make a movie uh, for about ten years at Fox. They'd they'd done a, about a half dozen takes on it, and nothing had really gone the distance. And um, they asked me if I wanted to to uh, give it a shot. And and my take on it was, well, what had, what had gotten lost for me as I looked at what they tried to do was they'd gotten away from um, the inherent comedy of the of the situation it was the it was maybe the lightest of the of the marvel heroes at that time it was it, it wasn't a dark complex um uh, rebel without a cause like spider-man it was a it was a dysfunctional family mm-hmm. and um and i thought really quite funny and i i felt that was where you needed to focus um a movie to make it work um so uh that turned out to be the movie that they made and um you know, on a picture like that, um, which is a big enterprise. I mean, it's a once you hit that hundred million dollar mark, um, it's it's like a giant threshing machine coming at you. You know that, um, it, and it has its own energy and its own gravity. And the script is basically something you throw at it and then run for your life. And and later, about a year later, they spit out a movie. So. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with what you wrote, but in that in the instance of the first movie, um, I, I felt that it kind of captured the tone of what we were going for and was fairly successful. Um, I, I'd also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I have a young son and wanted to make a movie that would be fun for him to see, a superhero movie that wasn't too dark and, and scary and was largely funny. So that was the first movie. The second movie was more... Uh, at least for me, it was less of a satisfactory uh, experience, both in in writing and and seeing the product. That was a that was one of those movies that was made because it had a release date, and wasn't necessarily about what was inherent in the material. It was more about you know we've got we've got to make the movie by this day, and so let's not worry too much about what it's going to be. Let's just make a great trailer and get it out there. Um, so that was a less satisfying experience, but the the first movie was for me a, a, a lot of fun. Uh, do you think that 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 the whole tentpole experience has become one of you know well you know we can we can merchandise? I mean it's it's all the ancillary kind of things around a movie that 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 the writing and the actual even if the movie I mean I guess they still want to have a fabulous opening weekend, but it doesn't seem like there's much. Concern for story and or integrity for story uh, and or uh, for having great movies is just like you know, we could put out something and and you know we can we can you know uh, market through McDonald's or through some other fast food we get the toys out in the in, you know in the WalMarts and the Targets and we can you know so there's everything else but the movie and if the movie just doesn't do that well they still are doing fine with the yeah they've kind of covered their bet you know it's. Um that's become a, a real high stakes casino and they have to do that in order to to um make sure they don't go in the tank. I mean the the reason 
a lot of those movies aren't as good as they could be is because they're, they're, there's a lot more time spent on the things you were describing than there is on the actual content of the film. And um, very often you've got so many hands working um, and, and and pulling it in different directions that unless you've got a really strong um, hand, at, either as a director or a producer, it's very difficult to maintain a kind of uh, creative consistency. Um, so you'll see a movie like um, Green Lantern, which they you know promoted the the life out of, and which died very quickly at the box office because it didn't deliver uh, on the promise of of the marketing campaign. Mm. Um, I think Marvel's got it figured out pretty well. They've you know they've been doing this once they took over uh, running their own, their own company and stopped shopping their stories to different studios. They they've been able to kind of maintain a I, I guess I'd call it a, a, a brand consistency in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, they had a very clear marketing plan in place, you know, doing the Iron Man movie, the Hulk movie, the Thor movie, the Captain America movie, all aimed toward the the Avengers movie, which comes out next year. So, um, But there is a difference in, in a way between, you know, a movie and a marketing campaign. And I think consumers are smart enough to, to know the difference. And if, so if you want to go, you know, if you want to go to Disneyland for two hours uh, and and go on a couple of roller coaster rides, you know that's what you're going to see when you go to see one of those movies. If if you want a movie that gives you some insight into the human experience, you're going to go see Moneyball or The Help. You're not going to go see... Uh, Green Lantern. So uh, consumers are smart enough to know that, and and it's nice that they have a choice. I, um, uh, you know, I, we've got maybe two minutes left, uh, and I'm going to let you go. But I do have a, a qu- by the way, there are a lot of people saying thank you, Mr. Frost, and and that they're very inspired and they've enjoyed this very much. Uh, I'm going to ask from Anthony the the final question from the chat room, and and then I'll let you go. I have uh, certainly many more, but he says when you make the movie, for example, you know, like uh, Fantastic Four, are you thinking about the the comic book when you write something, or about the movie, and uh, how do you kind of how, how do you do that, or where do you go with well, that? Well, I was trying to to bear in mind at all times the spirit of the comic book, um, the 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 kind of wacky comedy that Stan Lee had created, and the um, it's a that was a comic that was very much in and of a piece uh, of, a, of a a particular New York Brooklyn mindset uh, that Stan Lee grew up with, and that is really personified in the in the Ben Grimm character, the thing, you know, that's, that's kind of who Stan is. Um, and, uh, so I think that, yeah, I think our, our picture did capture that feel. Uh, and that's, that's about the best you can hope for, you know, um, comics have evolved a lot along with movies and they're very dark and rich and deeper than they used to be. Um, here we were consciously trying to do a sort of retro version of the original spirit of the comics and uh, that that was a clear conscious choice so um I, I think in that instance it worked pretty well that's fantastic hey mark this has been a, an absolutely fabulous hour i certainly have appreciated it I've, I've wanted to to have you on the air for so long and i'm, I'm glad that you uh we made it today and again we're getting you know accolades on the show and, and what a great guest you are and i, I certainly appreciate it and uh, we're going to have you back, and we'll let the uh, listeners know when that is. So I encourage everyone who's listening now to stay tuned uh, to the show and to you know my Facebook page and things like that so you know when Mark will be coming back. Uh, but I just, again, want to say thanks. I'll talk to you in a couple minutes but because uh, I know you got to run. But thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure, Rex. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, and, and, and I'll be talking to you soon. Okay. All right, enjoy your, enjoy your day. You too. Again, a fascinating guest, Mr. Mark Frost. Wow, I really enjoyed this show. I can see again from the chat room that so many of you did too. If you're listening to this archived, uh, you know, join us next time uh, when you can too be in the chat room and ask questions. That's one of the advantages of, of being able to listen live. I know that it doesn't broadcast all the time around the world, and you know, when it's convenient, so people, you know, wake up in the morning and listen, and other people are going to bed with it playing late at night. So, uh, but I appreciate you being here, whether it's live or archived. Go ahead and leave comments. 
right where you're listening, right where the player is, live or archived, go ahead and leave comments about the show. And uh, if you would, that's great. It extends our reach. Uh, if, the play, if, you, if you have to, you might have to wait until the player closes all the way down before the comment window becomes available or before you see it. Otherwise, it's typically right below the player. So uh, scroll down and look for it. Uh, if you're listening to this as an iTunes, please rate and review the show. Again, Mr. Frost's uh, website is by Mark Frost, B-Y-M-A-R-K-F-R-O-S-T, and his Twitter address is M, as in Mark, M Frost 11 And so follow him on Twitter. And uh, please do tweet about it about it after the show or post it on your Facebook wall, share it with your friends and uh, and make it available because that's all we ask of you in return is to make sure that uh, you spread the word and, and share these interviews with others. So uh, thanks, Mark. And uh, and to you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat, I've got many more exciting guests coming up in the near future, so be sure to stay tuned and please keep sharing the website. You can become a member or you can become a friend of Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, Facebook page by clicking on the like button at the Facebook page, which is Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends. You can follow me on Twitter by going to Rex Sykes, or at Rex Sykes Movie BT. That last word, beat, is abbreviated, Rex Sykes Movie BT. And uh, one other thing, I have a new YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and in that case, it's all spelled out, so you can go there and you can look at some of the things that are up there, the different interviews and and uh, and little videos. All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects until we meet the next time. And the next time we'll be with Peter Marshall, director. Uh, that is a wrap.